Hello, We the People listeners. We need your help to make this podcast even better. Please go to bit.ly forward slash WTP feedback and tell us what you think. Uh, it's a mouthful, I know. It's bit.ly forward slash WTP feedback. Thanks for giving us your feedback. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we take a deep dive into one of the most important cases before the Supreme Court this term, Zubik versus Burwell. Zubik comes to the court as seven combined cases, all brought by religious nonprofits. Some of you may know it as the Little Sisters of the Poor case, since the sisters are indeed part of the challenge. But the combined case is named for the first individual case to reach the court. Zubik refers to the Most Reverend David Zubik, who's the Catholic Bishop of Pittsburgh. And Burwell is Sylvia Burwell, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The question before the court, does the Affordable Care Act's requirements that employers provide free insurance coverage for contraception to female workers violate the religious liberty of those employers? And as we'll see in our discussion, the answer turns not on the meaning of the Constitution per se, but on the meaning of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the federal law which was also central to the Hobby Lobby case decided two years ago. Uh, loyal listeners will know the acronym for, th for that act, which is RIFRA, and we'll be talking about it, but we will try to unpack it in terms that everyone, uh, especially me, can understand. Joining us to parse these crucial issues and to predict how the court will rule or not rule are two of the leading experts in America on religious liberty and the Constitution. Greg Lipper is senior litigation counsel at Americans United for Separation of Church and State in Washington. He's currently lead counsel in University of Notre Dame versus Burwell, in which he represents a Notre Dame student opposing the university's separate challenge to the contraception mandate. And Michael Moreland is professor of law at the Villanova University Charles Widger School of Law, where he teaches and writes on law and religion, among other topics. He joined us from North Bend, Indiana, where he's currently visiting professor of law at the University of Notre Dame. Greg, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jeff. Greg, let me start with you, and just let's put the facts on the table. As they say in law school, describe what the accommodation that's at issue in this case is and how it works. Um, so I was hoping since it was going to be like law school that you, you sternly address me as Mr. Lipper. But uh, in, in any <laughs> event. You come so, here with so, a skull full of mush and you will leave here exactly. thinking like a lawyer. Listeners, listeners may not remember the paper chase. I'm seeing a bewildered <laughs> look from Nicandre Iannacci, but it was a great show from the 70s. So check it out, everybody. Okay, Mr. Lipper, uh, you may proceed. So, so the accommodation arose, um, actually arose in 2012, and it was, it was a way to ensure that women um, continued to receive the contraceptive coverage that they were entitled to by law but that the religious objections of nonprofit organizations and then later even for-profit corporations were addressed. And so under the accommodation, uh, if you have a religious, re religious objection to including contraceptive coverage in your plan, all you have to do is either fill out a form and send that form to your insurance company or plan administrator, all, or alternatively, write a letter to the government saying, I object. And once that happens, the objector doesn't have to provide contraceptive coverage, doesn't have to pay for contraceptive coverage. 
Rather, the government then arranges with the objector's insurance company or plan administrator to provide the coverage to affected women at no charge to them and at no charge uh, to the objectors. And it was this accommodation that the Supreme Court in the Hobby Lobby decision said, okay, here is another way to provide this coverage. We're pointing to this. And so simply extend that accommodation to objectors like Hobby Lobby and other objectors um, in order to address their religious liberty concerns. Thanks so much for that, Mike. Uh, so, so Mike, Greg says that basically uh, what the government did here was just follow the instructions of Hobby Lobby and try to provide the very accommodation that the court signaled would be okay. Do you agree or disagree, and how would you describe how the accommodation works? I think what the plaintiffs in these cases are objecting to is that, uh, as they uh, as they put it in their briefs, that basically that the government, by virtue of this permission from them, or noting an objection, that the government basically then commandeers then either the third-party administrator or the health insurance plan to provide the objected to coverage, and that this still makes them complicit in um, in providing it, and that's the that's the basis of their of their RIFRA claim. Uh, of course, their uh, churches are exempt altogether um, from from the uh, HHS mandate, and uh, the plaintiffs in this case, I think, uh, are arguing that basically that, that that's the optimal solution uh, for the uh, for the government to pursue here. But short of that, uh, they also don't want the, their plans being used to deliver the uh, drugs and other things they object to. Uh, thanks for that. Um, so, Greg. Um, Mike obviously disagrees, and, and the oral argument, uh, Justice Alito, and po- possibly as many as three other justices, uh, disagreed that this was what they had called for in Hobby Lobby. H- how did this confusion arise if the government thought that it was merely doing what the Supreme Court was asking for? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So I will say this. In the Supreme Court, in Hobby Lobby, the Supreme Court said, you don't need to require Hobby Lobby and other for-profit corporations to provide the coverage directly. But don't worry, our decision will not impose any harms on affected women who need this coverage because you have this less restrictive alternative. Um, granted, the court in Hobby Lobby stopped short of, of specifically blessing the accommodation, but I mean, they pointed to this as the way out of the case. And Justice Kennedy, in his concurring opinion in Hobby Lobby, went even further and said the government's interest was compelling and this accommodation is a way to, uh, to provide the coverage uh, and make sure that religious obje- liberty objections are concerned. You know, I think the argument about commandeering, or as it was described at the oral argument about hijacking, um, really misapprehends, you know, who owns what. The insurance company is an independent entity. It is under an independent federal obligation to provide contraceptive coverage. And so, uh, you know, uh, an employer or a university, a university like Notre Dame, which has tens of thousands of students covered by these and, and employees covered by this insurance company, simply is not, it doesn't have the owner, it doesn't own the insurance company. You know, it's, it's not a commandeering because it's a separate third-party entity. Um, you know, it's akin to the government setting up shop across the street and saying, okay, employees, we will give you this contraceptive coverage um, because your employer refuses to do so. Great. Well, it sounds like much of the disagreement is turning on whether or not the government is commandeering, or to use a phrase that came up a lot in the oral argument, hijacking uh, these insurance schemes. And during oral argument, much was made of the use of the term hijacking. We're now going to hear an audio clip of Don Verrilli, followed by Justice Kennedy, using the term hijacking in, in ways that many people think may indicate his voting 
preference. Uh, Nicandra, take it away and give us the audio. Congress made a judgment here that this does impose a very significant obstacle. These kinds of requirements result in significantly less use of medically necessary services. And it's not — it doesn't just come down to this. And that's really. why it's necessary to hijack the plans. Uh, great. So, um, Mike, uh, Greg had said that Justice Kennedy was calling for this kind of plan, but now we hear him in the oral argument s- calling this a form of hijacking. Describe more what may have been in Justice Kennedy's mind and, and how this how you believe this, this plan hijacks the insurance companies. Well, just taking one step back, RIFRA requires that the government uh, pursue uh, the interest it's pursuing that imposes substantial burden has to be a compelling interest and that the means chosen are the least restrictive. And the fact in Hobby Lobby that uh, the opinions pointed to a less restrictive means, namely the accommodation, doesn't necessarily mean that these are the least restrictive means, that there may be other ways of accomplishing the government's interest that would not implicate the plans or third-party administrators of the employers at all. And that's, that's what the plaintiffs in these cases are now arguing. And they're saying that, look, it's the very fact that we have an insurance contract or if we're case of a self-insured entity that we have a third-party administrator, that's the mechanism whereby now these objected to drugs and services are going to be delivered. And that's the that's the core of, of the so-called hijacking claim. And their argument is, look, is, is there a less restrictive means even more? And the, the answer is yes. There could be an exchange-only plan that would deliver contraceptives. And then, of course, uh, there's the, the possibility of an exemption altogether, uh, which probably isn't on the table. But those are the kind of arguments that the plaintiffs here are trying to make. Great. Well, let's talk about the least restrictive means that arose during oral argument. Uh, Greg, Mike mentions an exchange-only plan. Tell us what that is and tell us what you think about other least restrictive means, in other words, uh, alternatives that might impose less on religious freedom rights uh, that seem to be on the table. Sure. So, So, you know, I think if we assume that simply opting out of providing the coverage itself constitutes a substantial burden, which I think there are strong arguments against. But let's assume that for a moment. Um, you know, there, there was discussion at the oral argument from the lawyers for the objectors and from a couple of justices saying, well, just the government can set up contraceptive, a separate contraceptive only plan that women can then go out and find on the exchange. Uh, those plans don't exist under current law, so we'd have to re- wait for Congress to act and you know, query what are the chances of that happening. Um, you know, some of the challengers are suggesting, well, that women can get this coverage through Title X clinics, which are designed to provide you know, contraceptive coverages for low-income women. There was a number of other um, alternatives th- that were floated. The, the problem with these alternatives, well, there, there's two problems. One is that they don't exist right now. But even if, even if you could wave a magic wand and get Congress to put them in place, as, as the Solicitor General said at oral argument, they present the very problems that the Women's Health Amendment to the Affordable Care Act was trying to solve. And the problem was that women's health care was not being treated equally as men's health care, there were all these additional barriers. And if you force women to, for part of their health care, go through the effort of finding a separate plan and then having perhaps even a separate network of doctors for it, it, it severs contraceptive care from the West, rest of their health care. Imagine, for example, let me take another example of a type of religious objection that's out there. There are various you know, Jews, Muslims, and Hindus that object to uh, pills covered in gelatin. 
Imagine if you needed blood pressure medicine, and because your employer objected, you were forced to go out and get a separate gelatin-covered pill-only plan and see a separate doctor, you know, separate from your cardiologist in order to treat, in order to get the right blood pressure medication. I don't think anyone on the Supreme Court would entertain that. I think that type of argument would be laughed out of court. Um, but for some reason, because, you know, it's contraception, I think there are some people that think it's okay to impose all of these additional barriers to women's health care. Okay, what we're talking about now is this crucial question of whether there are less restrictive alternatives in meeting the government's goals. Uh, that came up at oral argument where Justice Alito suggested that there were many alternatives. Um, Nicandra's going to give us that audio, and then, Mike, I'm going to ask you what uh, less, less restrictive alternatives you would suggest. Uh, Nicandra, take it away. As I said, Your Honor, if RIFRA scrutiny applies, then this certainly is the least restrictive alternative. Well, let me mention one of them. Suppose that it were possible for a woman who does not get contraceptive coverage uh, under a grandfather plan or under uh, a, a plan offered by a church or under a plan offered by a religious nonprofit to obtain a contraceptive-only policy free of charge on one of the exchanges. Why would that not be a, least, a less restrictive alternative? Uh, Mike, what about those alternatives, and are there any others that you think should be on the table? Well, the, the point that Justice Alito was gesturing toward there is that, is that there are already some exceptions to the requirement of providing uh, contraceptive coverage for, as you mentioned, grandfathered plans, so plans that uh, haven't made material changes to certain parts of the plan, and to those that are altogether exempt uh, because they're offered by a church. And so in those instances, the government's already having to come up with some alternative, and that's what led later on to the arguments that, well, couldn't you have a, a plan on the exchanges? that could be done through administrative rulemaking that would provide uh, contraceptive coverage that would be a separate uh, a plan such that the um, entities in, in this case wouldn't be complicit in, in providing it. Great. Well, uh, when it comes to less restrictive alternatives, we had a dramatic uh, development yesterday when the court issued an order asking the parties to consider other options beyond the current accommodations to comply with the mandate it ordered the parties to file supplemental briefs that will address this question in a way that doesn't require the involvement of petitioners beyond their own decisions to provide health insurance without contraceptive coverage to employers. And the order actually gives an example of an option different from the current uh, accommodation. I am going to read it because it's so significant. Uh, it, it, here it is. Uh, the court said, the party should consider a situation in which petitioners would contract to provide health insurance for their employees and in the course of obtaining such insurance, inform their insurance company they don't want their health plans to include contraception coverage of the type to which they object on religious grounds. Petitioners would have no legal obligation to provide such contraceptive coverage and would not pay for such coverage and would not be required to submit any separate notice to their insurer, to the federal government, or to their employees. At the same time, petitioners' insurance company would separately notify petitioners' employees that the insurance company will provide cost-free contraceptive coverage and the coverage is not paid for by petitioners and is not provided through the petitioner's health plan. With apologies for the length of that important quotation, Greg, rather unusual uh, in its specificity for the court to set such a specific example of an alternative. What do you make of the alternative? And also, what do you make of the fact that the court uh, suggested it? What's going on behind the scenes? So, so it's it's obviously hard to hard to know what's going behind the scenes. But as I as I said in a, in a blog post I wrote yesterday, it's it's foolish to 
try to read tea leaves, but let's, you know, go ahead and read them anyway. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on. Um, it is in order, you know, the court certainly called for supplemental briefing in prior cases, but I certainly can't remember anything this specific. Um, and I think part of what's going on is that we have an eight-member Supreme Court right now, and so if there is a split down the middle on the court with four justices thinking one thing and four justices thinking another thing, um, someone has got to bend in order to get a majority. Uh, and so here is how I read this order, and I actually think it puts the religious objector, objectors in a bit of a bind. I read the order to say that a majority of the court, and that means including Justice Kennedy, um, has accepted the notion that the government has an interest in ensuring seamless access to contraceptive coverage. In other words, not forcing women to get a separate contraceptive-only plan that's going to require them to artificially sever their reproductive health care from the rest of their health care. And so this is a proposal that is very similar to the accommodation but doesn't require the objectors to sign any form, you know, or to even write a letter to the government saying, you know, leave us alone. And, and so in that sense, I think it is a recognition that the government's interest in seamless coverage um, can't be achieved through, through these other means. The second thing I think it does, and this is why I think it actually puts the religious objectors in a bind, is that if the objectors object to this, where they literally do not have to do anything, um, then I think it makes it highlights even more vividly that what's really going on is they object to their employees getting contraceptive coverage from a third party, even if they have nothing to do with it. In other words, it stops being an argument about so-called hijacking or complicity and much more becomes an ar argument of like we want a paternal relationship with our employees and we don't want them getting contraceptive coverage from any source. Um, you know, I'll be very curious to see how they respond. I actually asked a Beckett fund lawyer on Twitter yesterday whether they were going to accept the Supreme Court's proposal and I, I didn't hear anything in response. So I think it has them um, in a bit of a pickle. Interesting. Uh, Mike, uh, do you agree that the order puts the religious groups in a bind? And more broadly, what is your response to the substance of the court's order and what you think is going on behind the scenes? Right. Well, I think one thing that is reasonably clear from it is that the basis on which the government prevailed in the circuit courts, which is that there is no substantial burden on religious free exercise, uh, is likely going to be rejected by the Supreme Court, that there are at least five votes on the court to say that, no, there is a substantial burden, which means that we're now moving to the application of RIFRA's strict scrutiny requirement. And so I think that generally that that's good for, um, for RIFRA claims, because I, I do think that without it being uh, a matter of absolute deference to plaintiffs, I do think that, um, that a no substantial burden as a matter of law holding would have been damaging to religious freedom. And so the fact that the court is requesting more briefing on the narrow tailoring issue, uh, I think, is is uh, is noteworthy. Um, as to the uh, suggested accommodation, I, obviously I don't represent the plaintiffs in any of these cases. I don't know what what they will say about it it does it does take them one further step removed from complicity in in providing the uh contraceptives to which they object although it does still uh have the potential for their own plans being used for this purpose and it doesn't speak to the issue of uh self-insured plans which many of these are uh and that could get tricky because and I know we don't want to probably get too far into the weeds of self-insured plans versus uh 
you know, third-party insurers and so forth. But I do think that uh, as to self-insured plans, many of the same problems would still be in place even under this uh, accommodation that's contemplated in the uh, in the order. Interesting. Uh, if um, I let, if, if, in you, please, please do, and let me uh, ask you to respond to that and also to this uh, question, uh, Greg, as well, which is that Mike suggests that there may be a majority on the court for finding that this accommodation is a substantial burden. Do you agree? And what would the consequences be? Doug Laycock has written that he thinks a win by the petitioners on this point would do terrible damage to the larger cause of religious liberty because it would threaten the thousands of specific religious exemptions in U.S. law by not allowing legislators to produce narrow exemptions without the chance they'd be expanded. Is this a legitimate fear? And and how will the larger ideas of religious liberty and government be impacted as a result? Uh I think it is, and actually, I just written down in my notepad Laycock, so I was I'm glad okay. you brought we're, him up. We're, ta- was, we're channeling uh, each other. Great. Yeah, so so let me take a step back on the question of substantial burden. I think um, I think it was very clear from the oral argument that a majority does not think that the accommodation imposes a substantial burden. Um, it seemed very it seemed pretty clear that justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan did not think there was a substantial burden, and and they did mention Doug Laycock. And, and let, let me just provide a bit of background for the listeners who aren't familiar with him. Um, Doug Laycox, a a law professor at the University of Virginia, he is a very strong proponent, a very strong supporter of RIFRA and a very strong proponent of broad religious exemptions. He regularly works with the Beckett Fund, who's representing many of the plaintiffs in this case. In fact, he recently represented a Beckett Fund client at the Supreme Court, and he filed a brief in support of Hobby Lobby two years ago. Um, But when Doug Laycock turns around and says, if the plaintiffs win in this case, it presents a, you know, poses a, quote, mortal threat to religious liberty. Um, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people do take seriously. And I think his concerns are um, twofold. First of all, that, it, that if you're arguing that if a, if a church gets a particular exemption, then other nonprofits and even for-profit corporations are required to get that same exemption, that's going to make the government very reluctant to provide exemptions and accommodations at all, even to houses of worship. Um, And I think the second concern he has is that it looks like even after the government has gone out of its way to accommodate objectors, and even after their involvement in the process is removed, they're continuing to fight. And it makes it look like their objections are in less than good faith. It makes it look like what they really want to do is control the reproductive freedom of others. And all of this is going to diminish political support for religious accommodations, many of which are necessary and are important. So I think it's a really important point. And, you know, I would not be so quick to uh, conclude that there is a substantial burden here or that a majority of the court thinks so. Um, On the particular point that Mike made about um, whether the proposal uh, issued by the court in yesterday's order would not work for self-insured plans, I, I actually don't think that's accurate because, you know, as we've seen, all of the self-insured plans, um, so a self-insured plan is when an employer you know, basically pays for the health care itself, but all of those plans have third-party plan administrators. And what I read the court's order to say is, in the case of a self-insured plan, um, the, you know, the plan administrator would then make the, you know, would make the arrangements to provide the coverage. So again, it would be completely separate from the employers who, after all, don't own their insurance companies, don't own their plan administrators. You know, if their plan administrators want to go out on their own and provide contraceptive coverage to their employees, I don't see why that's any, you know, there's no involvement at all by the objectors, let alone complicity. 
Okay, listeners, we'll return to this great conversation with Greg and Mike in just a moment. But before we do, I want to thank you for listening and ask for your help in making this podcast even better. Would love your feedback on a range of things. How is the audio quality? We've heard from some of you that it could be better and are going to work uh, to make sure our listeners uh, sound as beautifully clear as I do here in our incredible state-of-the-art broadcast studio in, at the National Constitution Center. Uh, I'd love to know how you find the substance of the debates. Is it pitched for the right level? Uh, is it constitutional wonkery at its best? Or, or would you like it at a higher or lower level? Um, and how other uh, ways do you think that we can improve things? Changes big and small and suggestions would be much appreciated. So do go to bit.ly forward slash WTP feedback to share your thoughts. That's bit.ly forward slash WTP feedback. Okay, let's get back to this great show. Uh, Mike, I'd like your thoughts on Doug Laycock's claim that a win by the petitioners would damage the cause of religious liberty by threatening thousands of specific religious exemptions in U.S. law and not allowing narrow exemptions. And, And please take up, if you think it's worthwhile, the fact that in response to uh, criticism, uh, Doug Laycock clarified after his brief was filed um, his view that, quote, if the religious nonprofits are correct that the accommodation requires the Little Sisters to contract with their insurance companies to provide contraception, that would clearly be a substantial burden in, in my view. Right. I mean, I, I have uh, great admiration for, for Doug Laycock. I, I do think that... Um, and there was some back and forth last week about you know what what, what his um, what his views actually were, but I do think that look the the courts here are in a position to ask questions about the sincerity of the religious objection, but as to whether or not in the exercise of their religion, the little sisters and the other plaintiffs um, believe in, and I don't think anyone's questioning the sincerity of their belief that by uh, providing insurance to their employees that then the government uses to provide um, contraceptives, that that is a burden on their, on their free exercise. And that, uh, the, the fact that um, you know that, that the accommodation poses that is uh, is what is triggering the RIFRA strict scrutiny analysis in a case like this. So I just I don't think that um, I don't think it is anywhere near the kind of extreme kind of argument that the government and that uh, at least with one version of Doug Laycock's brief was saying that they are making. And look, the government is already exempting a lot of employers from this requirement. It exempts churches altogether from the requirement. It exempts uh, grandfather plans. Uh, and so there are other, you know, there are other interests um, at stake in, in this debate. Uh, as to the, um, as to whether or not the, the issue on the, on the self-insured plans, I guess it, it just keeps coming back to the question of whether or not one thinks that there are less restrictive means of the government delivering these these objected to services and drugs without using the plans, if that is the central problem. And that's what I think the Beckett Fund and the other lawyers for the uh, for the plaintiffs will be arguing in response to this request for supplemental briefing. Great. Well, um, w- the big question obviously raised by this case is one that Justice Breyer asked during the oral argument, which is what should be the line in RIFRA between government regulations that violate a person's religious liber- uh, liberties and those that don't? How should the court make that determination? I'm gonna, we're going to ask Nicandra to play uh, the clip from Justice Breyer asking that question, and then, Greg, I'll ask you how you would answer it. Nicandra. So what's the line? Why do the Quakers have to pay the taxes for Vietnam? But 
you don't find the religious Jew or Muslim getting an extra day off during the week when the law says nobody can work on Sunday because their Sabbath is on Saturday. What is the line? And I've been reading and reading to try to find a fairly clear, simple statement of what that line is and how it works. And to repeat the difficulty of Sherbert and Werner, which is what Riffer does, quite honestly, doesn't help me. But you might. Uh, Greg, you might as well. What's the line? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, you know, th this is the, the age-old question because, you know, because we don't live in a theocracy, the mere fact that there is a religious objection can't control, right? Obviously, you know, you, you know, you know there's, there are laws that protect other people. And, and I think there, there are, two, I think, two important lines, and I think they relate to each other. The first important line is you get to object to things that you have to do but you don't get to object to things that other people have to do, you know, which is why in the 1980s, for instance, there was a religious objection to um, uh, some, you know, someone applied for Social Security benefits and the government gave them a Social Security number and that violated their religion. It went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said there is no free exercise problem here because what you're objecting to is what the government is doing. They can do what they want. You know, you, you know, and you can't control what they do if it doesn't involve you. So I think that's one important line the line between things you have to do and things other people have to do. And I think that's implicated in this case. The second line, and this I think is arguably even more important, is the line between religious exemptions and accommodations that do not harm other people and religious accommodations that do. And so, but, you know, something in the first category, a case last term, which was a, an inmate, uh, a Muslim inmate wanted to grow a short beard. Um, you know, we supported, we worked, you know, and so supported the Beckett Fund in that case because that was an accommodation that was important to the inmates' religious exercise, but it didn't cause any problems to others. On the other hand, accommodations that would allow discrimination, accommodations that would withhold vital health care from people, accommodations that would say, you know, you don't have to pay your employees the minimum wage or you don't have to pay their social security taxes or, you know, accommodations that say, that say I don't want to pay women the same as men. All of these are actual free exercise cases, and all of these are claims that have been rejected. And one of the main reasons they've been rejected is because these are accommodations that harm others. And those types of accommodations are not consistent with the pluralistic society that we live in, in which you know, religious exercise is an important interest, but other people who may have different beliefs um, are entitled to their interests as well. Thank you so much for those two helpful lines focusing on the distinction between accommodations that harm or affect others and those that harm or affect ourselves. John Stuart Mill would be proud. And Mike, I want to ask you well, where you would draw the line. Uh, I'm, I guess uh, Greg and I are having a, a moment of agreement here. It's just he might not agree with me that I think both those lines actually are to the plaintiff's benefit in these cases. Look, I mean, if the government can still find a way to deliver uh, contraceptives to uh, female employees that doesn't implicate the plans of the of the plaintiffs, then there's no third-party harm. They, they they still get the the, the coverage. Uh, as to what you have to do and what and what others do, again, that's the that's the core of the plaintiffs claim here, which you know, may or may not prevail, but the core of their claim here is that they are having to be implicated in providing uh, these contraceptives to which they object because of the way in which their health plans operate. Again, that, that's, that's, that's what they're arguing. I, I understand that people on the other side say, well, no, it's independent from, from the employer. But look, if, if the government's interest is in seamless coverage, there's tension between the argument that it's seamless coverage using the employer's insurance company and then saying, oh, but it's independent of the, of the employer's uh, 
the employer's decision or with their complicity in it. So again, I, I'm I'm willing to uh, accept Greg's lines as to when when accommodations or exemptions have to be granted. It's just that I think in this case they they are um, they're for the for the benefit of the plaintiffs here. Very. Well, I think that's a start. <laughs> I, I, I do I do just want to add one point: the the argument that. There is no harm to women here because the government can also can always provide the coverage itself. Um, I do just want to explore the implications of that argument for a moment because they're rather striking. You know, as I mentioned, there have been cases there there have been cases in which employers said, "I have a religious objection to the equal pay laws." In other words, I think that men, under my religious beliefs, men are the head of the households; women are not, and so I am going to pay my male employees more than I'm going to pay my female employees. Um, you could always say in that case, well, no harm to women. The government can always make up the salary difference. If I pay my male employees $15 an hour and my female employees $10 an hour, the government can always kick in the extra five bucks. No harm, no foul. But I think we'd find that argument laughable. And in fact, courts rejected it. And so I don't think the test can be, well, the government can always repair the harm that is caused by your accommodation. You know, Less restrictive means doesn't mean um, you get to impose harm, and then the government can fix it later. Mike, your response to that? If I can respond, I, I mean, I, I, I agree. The, the issue, I think, turn, turns on whether or not an exemption is administrable. And in the case of an Equal Pay Act uh, exemption, I would argue it would not be administrable. But in this case, it is. And how do we know that? Because the government's already exempted a lot of entities from it. It just has refused to grant it to these religious objectors. Okay, uh, fascinating colloquy. I want to return to the proposed alternative that the court put forward yesterday. Uh, Greg, is it fair to assume that the court is trying to avoid a four-to-four split and come up with some narrow alternative that everyone can converge around? And how do you think the parties will respond to the order of the brief? In the brief, does it in fact cut the Gordian knot? Right. So I, I think it is. Certainly one, and I think the probably the most likely way to read this is the court is on the verge of a 4-4 split and would like to avoid it. All that said, I mean, you know, Justice Kennedy in particular, um, I think when he is the swing vote in cases, does think about these things a lot. He's certainly been known to change his mind over the course of deliberations and some very other high-profile cases involving both uh, religious liberty and reproductive rights. So it also, I think, is another way to read this is, you know, Justice Kennedy is thinking about it and has some more questions, and some of the other justices do as well. So I think, you know, that's that's another possibility as well. In terms of how the parties will respond, let me start with the government. I think that um, the government is, I think the question from the government side is, you know, is the is what is proposed by the Supreme Court consistent with existing law? In other words, would this arrangement be, um, would be, would it be permissible under ERISA, the Employment um, Retirement and Income Security Act, which governs employee benefits, including plans? Um, so I think the government would, if, if I'm the government, which I'm not, but if I were, I would say, you know, we think the accommodation is fine when we think the accommodation is the best approach. Um, but if you were to conclude that the accommodation doesn't satisfy RIFRA, we think the alternative you propose um, has the best chance of ensuring that women receive seamless coverage. On the side of the religious objectors, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I think, like I said, I, I think they're going to be hesitant to embrace what the court has proposed because it's so close to the accommodation that they're challenging. 
um, you know, I think they really do want, you know, a government only plan or to send women to Title X clinics or some other approach. But I, I do think it, it's it's a difficult question for them because if they if they refuse to accept what the court proposed when they literally do not have to, to do anything, I think it really does make it clear that what they object to is the actions of third parties. And so um, I'm actually very curious to see how they'll respond. I think they have a very um, they have a very difficult needle to thread. Interesting. Mike, how do you think that the parties will respond to the court's proposed compromise? And do you agree with, uh, with uh, that uh, Justice Kennedy may be uh, trying to come up with a narrower compromise? Right. And I, and I do think that uh, just in the background, I think that they would like to avoid a 4-4 split in part because it would leave the circuit split in place, which would mean that other than – so the government prevailed in the circuit courts except in one, and so but that would mean that there would be a, a circuit split that would remain. So I think they're probably trying to find a way out of this. I also think, look, the, the, even the justices that uh, we think of as more, more liberal on the court um, are uh, often um, – friendly to religious exemptions. The decision last year in the prison beard case, the decision was on a Tabor involving the ministerial exception. Those were all unanimous decisions of all the justices on the court. Um, so I, I think that's probably what's going on in the background, trying to find a way out of this. I am curious to know, uh, given uh, when these briefs come out, whether the government is able to articulate how it could make something like this work consistent with uh, ERISA and other um, existing statutes that um, regulate the health insurance plans. And then, as I said, we'll see what the what the plaintiffs do. I, I, I do think that it, uh, as Craig says, it's pretty close to what the accommodation already does, and it leaves in place the concern about um, the commandeering of the plans or the third-party administrators for purposes to which the em- employers object. And so we'll, we'll see if, if they're able to, uh, you know, find a way to argue that, well, this gets us one more step removed and thereby um, not complicit, or whether the uh, objections they have now are, are still still in place. Great. I'm, I'm going to ask one more substantive question uh, before we get to closing arguments, and, and you can respond to that uh, in, in a moment, Greg. But the question is this. One big uh, point that arose repeatedly yesterday is the petitioner's argument that they, as nonprofit religious organizations, should be treated the same way as houses of worship and given the same exemptions? Is that right? Should religious organizations uh, be treated in the same way uh, by the government and uh, under RIFRA? What's your What's your take on that distinction? Well, well, I think um, I, I think it's it is not the case that we have historically demanded that if a house of worship gets an exemption, then any other a nonprofit organization, you know, religiously affiliated should get that. And just to give a couple of examples, and again, this was this was what I think has Professor Laycock so concerned. Houses of worship um, uh, have, for instance, reduced uh, IRS reporting requirements. They have greater protections against tax audits. Um, you know, there is a, a variety of other exceptions that are reserved for houses of worship. And you know, no one has suggested that. If a house of worship gets that exemption, then a religiously affiliate that the University of Notre Dame also, for instance, has to get that exemption, a large university with tens of thousands of students and employers. And if that was the case, you would see houses of worship getting um, many fewer exemptions. The other thing I think is important to remember here is that the Supreme Court and Hobby Lobby said that whatever accommodation religious nonprofits get, uh, for-profit corporations with religious objections have to get as well. And so if we're saying that not only um, if we're saying that the Little Sisters of the Poor and Zubik and the University of Notre Dame are entitled 
to the house of worship treatment, then we're also saying that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood and all of these other for-profit corporations, some of which employ tens of thousands of people, would also have to be treated like houses of worship. Um, I think that would be astonishing, both in the, the number of employees that would be left without protection, but also the kind of system of religious haves and secular have-nots that we, that we would be creating. And again, in the long run, the incentive would be to simply give fewer exceptions to anyone. Because you know, if you have to give Hobby Lobby the same exemption that you give to the Catholic Church, then the government's going to think long and hard about giving even the most basic exemptions to houses of worship. I think this also, I think, goes to a broader point, and it came up at the oral argument, that all laws have exceptions. You know, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prevents race discrimination in hiring, has exceptions. The Americans with Disabilities Act has exceptions and had a long transitional period. But nobody would suggest that those laws nonetheless do not, uh, you know, advance strongly, exceedingly important, compelling interests. And I think, um, you know, that goes for this statute as well. Yes, there are exceptions for houses of worship. Yes, there are transitional periods. But that doesn't mean that the underlying interests in providing the necessary preventative care aren't still uh, ex extremely compelling. Thanks for that. Mike, Greg calls it astonishing that the University of Notre Dame, where you're now uh, teaching, or Hobby Lobby, the uh, corporation, should be treated the same as a house of worship. Uh, do you agree uh, or not? Well, I mean, I, I guess we could set uh, aside uh, for-profit corporations. I, I, I just think that, you know, closely held small corporations or um, like uh, Conestoga Wood and the like are, are, um, are they're likely to be a lot of uh, entities who would be lodging religious objections um, in that sector. But I do think that as to religious institutions, I do think that what has concerned many of us is that what the government has done in, in the HHS mandate context and, and other Others, is that it has decided that uh, religiously affiliated institutions like Notre Dame or hospitals are somehow not actually, they aren't really religious uh, for purposes of granting an exemption. And remember, at first they didn't exempt them at all, and then it was only later um, in the rulemaking process that they created this accommodation. And I do think that in other contexts, uh, the uh, exemptions for religious institutions are appropriately quite broad. For example, the Title VII exemption for um, from religious discrimination in hiring is, is accorded to lots of institutions institutions that are that have a lot of employees and and I think that basically in a in a society that wants to privilege toleration and uh, social cohesion I think that's the best approach wonderful well it is time gentlemen for closing arguments in this excellent discussion uh, Greg let me ask you what are the stakes for religious liberty in this Zubik case and how do you think the court will decide it um, so I think the stakes are significant, um, both for religious liberty and women's health. You know, for women's health, the basic question is, is women's health care and reproductive health care in particular um, going to be treated the same as other forms of health care that aren't subject to Rube Goldberg-like schemes in order for people to get that? And so I think if the court, um, you know, does not uphold the accommodation, I think that will be a, a serious loss for, for women's health. But I also think it will be a serious loss for religious liberty because it will make the government think twice in the future about providing any accommodations for anyone. And it will continue to associate you know, the noble cause of religious liberty with attempts to discriminate or interfere, interfere with other people's health care 
Um, and I think that will be bad for long-term political support for religious liberty. Uh, in terms of how the court's going to come out, I'll, I'll say this. I think there are four votes to uphold the accommodation. And so I think the worst case scenario for the government is a 4-4 split. And that means that you know the eight of the nine federal appeals court decisions that upheld the accommodation will stay in place um, with only the eight circuits decision um, you know, ruling for the objectors. And I think we might see Justice Kennedy come around to something along the lines of what the court proposed in its supplemental briefing order yesterday. But I think that's um, that's harder to tell. I think, you know, we'll either see a 4-4 split or we might see five votes for some sort of compromise solution that is very close to the accommodation um, and that the court recognizes uh, would survive uh, RIFRA scrutiny. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Mike, last word to you. What are the stakes for religious liberty in the Zubik case, and how do you think the court will decide it? Well, I mean, look, this is uh, this was administrative rulemaking uh, by the Department of Health and Human Services. It wasn't it wasn't uh, a requirement, at least as to the contraceptive coverage imposed by the statute itself. And Congress has spoken in a statute in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which requires that when the government imposes a substantial burden, it has to show it's uh, doing so for a compelling interest and in, in narrowly uh, in has pursued the least restrictive uh, means under the narrow tailing prong. And I think that uh, look, the accommodation as it is now uh, fails that. I think that uh, I think the government, uh, as I said earlier, I think the government has lost on the substantial uh, burden issue, which is how they uh, were prevailing uh, in other uh, in the lower courts. And I'm hopeful, at least, that there will be a majority to say that uh, the accommodation needs to be narrowed somehow uh, in order for this to pass strict scrutiny under under RIFRA. And again, I think that's good for religious freedom because it will mean that uh, religious institutions that have sincerely held uh, objections to providing these, this coverage will uh, be allowed to do so in a way that is consistent with their with their religious beliefs and will still allow the coverage to go to, uh, to uh, women who are employed by them. Wonderful. Well, this has been just a great discussion. Uh, we began with the paper chase, that wonderful 1970s series. <laughs> so I can say, like John Houseman, uh, I don't have to say, here's a dime, call your mother, tell her you will never be a lawyer, because on the contrary, this has been an extremely rich and, ex and very illuminating discussion. The Paper Chase reminds me, they had a wonderful theme song, and uh, listeners, we're looking for a theme song for We the People. Uh, I, if you can send in nominations, uh, that would be great. Ideally, songs before 1920 would be appreciated <laughs> because then they'll be in the public domain and we won't have to pay for the rights. But uh, uh, in the meantime, I can thank uh, Greg Lipper and Michael Moreland for a truly illuminating discussion about the Zubik case. Greg, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Greg. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg. We need your help to make this podcast even better. Go to bit.ly backslash WTP feedback to share your feedback. Freedom Day is April 13th. Learn more and get involved at constitutioncenter.org backslash freedom day. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation at our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. And please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debate presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. 
We the People is a member of the Slate Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country, like you, who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.